All right, so uh, Sissy Graham Lynch um, wrote a little piece, uh, I think for Samaritan's Purse, and she says this, I took a trip a few years ago to Liberia with Samaritan's Purse. We took four-by-four trucks and motorcycles deep into the jungle to reach a fish pond that Samaritan's Purse had built. At first glance, this project didn't look like much, just muddy ponds row by row. But as we spent the day harvesting fish, I learned that this simple pond had transformed the entire community. It was at this fish pond that I met an elderly woman. I vividly remember how she sat back away from the crowd watching the harvesting take place. Right away, I could tell there was something different about her. Her wrinkled face was marked by joy, and there was a light in her eyes. As she watched the harvest, I kept watching her. I knew she had a story to tell. When I finally got the chance to meet her, I learned she was the first Christian in her majority Muslim community. She was mocked, spat upon, and ridiculed for her faith. Most people would have given up. She prayed and believed that God was at work in her community. I can't help but imagine the years and years that she spent praying diligently for her community. It couldn't have been easy. She was publicly ridiculed for her faith, but she kept praying. She endured persecution. She kept praying. The fish pond was her unexpected answer to prayer. Samaritan's Purse built the fish pond, and when the church harvested the first group of fish, they shared it with everyone in the community, regardless of their religion. This small act of kindness began to soften, soften hearts. Suddenly, the town grew from one Christian woman to over a hundred believers. The fish pond was a catalyst for the gospel and an answer to her prayers. The same people who used to mock her now worship Jesus beside her at church. And then the writer says, I want a faith like this, pursuing Jesus no matter the cost, relentlessly bringing my prayers before God, even in the face of persecution. You want a faith like that? <laughs> I want a faith like that. Jesus wants a faith. Jesus wants a faith like that for his disciples, which is why he said what he said in Matthew 5, 38 to 48. That's the passage we're going to look at this morning. So you can turn in your Bible to page 810. And we're going to continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount refers to chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew, in the Gospel according to Matthew. So turn with me there, and I'll read, and you can follow along, and then we'll dive in to our study. All right, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so there's an outline in the bulletin. That's helpful. The points will be up on the screen as well. Um, First point, looking at verse 38, lex talionis. Maybe you've heard that phrase before, that expression. It comes from this verse. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So it's been called lex talionis, which means law according to kind. Okay, so this is what you did. Your punishment will be in kind, according to the crime. All right, so where did that come from? You've heard that it was said. Well, it comes from Leviticus 24.18. Also, you could look at Exodus 21.22-25. We'll just look at Leviticus 24. So whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life, right? Animal, one kind, you need to restore that animal, okay? So eye for eye, tooth for tooth, animal for animal. If anyone injures his neighbor, he shall ha- I'm sorry, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall given a person shall be given to him. So that all can sound pretty draconian, (laughs) like tooth for tooth, you know, like knock that thing out. But the original purpose of these commands was to actually prevent the vicious cycle of revenge and escalation. So let's say Moshe's property borders Benjamin's property and out in the fields one day, Moshe sees Benjamin reaping on his side of the property line, so he approaches Benjamin, and an argument ensues. Things escalate. They get into a fight. Benjamin ends up, you know, whacking him, getting whacked with a walking stick, you know, from Moshe, and his eye is out. He loses his sight in the one eye. So after a week, you know, the implications of blindness kind of set in, and, oh, he's so angry. Revenge starts to... You know, those fires get stoked, and so Benjamin pays Moshe a visit, and he brings along his cousin Issachar, pretty big dude, for backup. Benjamin has his own ideas of how Moshe should pay for this loss. Moshe doesn't seem to agree. Another fight ensues. This time, Moshe ends up with two broken arms and one of his eyes put out, and a feud breaks out, and it just escalates from there, right? So this law is actually intended to ensure that the punishment would fit the crime, that there was proportionality and things didn't escalate like that. The other thing to note is that this law was given to the nation as a whole to be carried out by the legal system. Okay? It was never meant to be a license for personal violence or revenge, but that's what it had become. So rather than minimizing violence and revenge, it became a justification for it. So in the face of that unlawful law-keeping, Jesus speaks with authority and with shocking clarity, actually. So to his hearers, his message was clear. To us, his words can be easily misunderstood and equally easy to misapply. So we need to be careful here. So let's look at verses 39 to 41 next. 42, 41. 
Um, make sure that we understand what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying, okay? So this is under the heading of take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, take my yoke on you, learn from me, for I am meek. This fleshes out what that looks like in real life. Look at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So what does that mean? So the main command is pretty clear, right? There in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Is that an absolute prohibition? Like, does that even apply to Satan? Satan's evil, right? Should we not resist him? Is this an absolute prohibition? Well, like in James 4, it says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil. So is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth here through Jesus? Does this mean that self-defense is never justified? We've got to understand what Jesus means here, right? Getting this right is really important. If you look back at verse 20 of Matthew 5, which is kind of the heading before you go into these six antitheses, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, we need to get this right. We need to understand what Jesus meant by what he said. So do not resist the one who is evil, main command. And then the next three sentences, the next three sentences in the end of verse 39, 40, 41, are all ways that that main command gets unpacked. So let's look at the first Main, uh, the first, sorry, having some trouble this morning. Um, look first at the main command, and then we'll look at those three examples, one after the other. All right, so do not resist the one who is evil. There's plenty of evil out there, evil ones out there. So does this mean, like I said, that self-defense is never justified? Can you defend yourself, resist the evil one, the one who is evil, if they break into your house and enter to steal, to hurt you? Is that resisting the one who is evil? What about third parties? Let's say you're walking, you know, downtown Wilmington. You know, you just had dinner. It's late. You come around the corner, and there's a guy beating up his girlfriend. Should you refrain from intervening on the basis of this text? Don't resist the one who's evil? Or what about national enemies that are dealt with at a military level? Should Hitler have been resisted? He was certainly an evil person. Does this mean that no Christian should ever enter the police force or the military? Some have actually taken this passage this way. Is that what Jesus is saying? So many of those to whom Jesus was speaking were using the eye for an eye law to justify their revenge. They were claiming obedience to the law, but their hearts were actually evil and angry. So they were missing the point of the law. Their righteousness needed to surpass this kind of external compliance while internally they were, you know, filled with revenge and, and anger. So Jesus goes to the heart and says, 
Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't retaliate. Let God be the judge. But by saying this, Jesus is not prohibiting the pursuit of justice. He's prohibiting the pursuit of revenge or getting even. Okay? So he's not saying you should never respond in self-defense. No. He's not saying you should never come to the rescue of someone who's being abused by an evil person. No, that's actually love to intervene and protect and rescue. So come to the rescue of those who are being attacked. Love your neighbor as yourself. John Stott says it really well. He says, he teaches, Jesus teaches, not the irresponsibility which encourages evil, even if passively, but the forbearance which renounces revenge. So do not resist the one who is evil. Gets unpacked with three examples. It kind of puts meat on the bones here for us. The first one, well-known phrase, turn the other cheek, right? Look at verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now remember, this would be clear to Jesus' hearers. To us, might not be so clear. We might easily misinterpret what he's saying here. There's actually a really important clue in this verse that's essential for understanding what Jesus is saying and also what he's not saying. Do you know what word it is? Right. Okay, so Bill, can you stand up? Need a little volunteer. So most of the world is right-handed, right? Okay, where's Bill's right cheek? You can point it out, Bill. Okay. So if I'm right-handed and that's his right cheek, what's happening if he gets slapped on the right cheek? It's this. It's a backhand. So what is Jesus... Thank you, Bill. You did a great job. (laughs) And I would never backhand you. Um, All right. So it meet... What's that? Oh, that's... Look at that. Such a great illustration, example. Living illustration. All right. So it means that you've been personally insulted, not physically assaulted. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This doesn't mean that we are going to be called to be gluttons for punishment. Okay? I mean, Paul certainly got beat up plenty of times because of his witness for Christ. But when he had the chance, he appealed to his Roman citizenship to avoid a beating. The issue here is honor, not safety. It's like pursuing safety is a good thing. That's okay. The point is, when you have your honor challenged, how do you react? In pride or in meekness and humility? So the point is here, if we're following Jesus, if we're we're in his kingdom, if we know who we are, if we know whose we are, if we are believers in the vindication of God and we value the honor, the smile, the pleasure of God, we can gladly take shame in the eyes of men in order to have honor in the eyes of God. We'd rather swallow our pride and lose face before people then displease God by taking prideful, vindictive, retaliatory revenge. So the issue is insult, not assault. (laughs) 
We don't have to accept assault. Somebody tries to attack you, you can defend yourself. Second example, give the cloak off your back. Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Well, what does this mean? Once again, it would have been clear to Jesus' hearers. It's a bit obscure to us. We've got to go through Palestine to get to Wilmington. So we won't know what it means for us until we understand what it meant for them. So there's two garments referred to in this verse, right? The tunic, it was like this form-fitting thing that served as your undergarment. And then the cloak was more like a coat. And it was this full-length robe sort of thing that was open in the front, right? So what? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, we actually need to know the Old Testament background. So Exodus 22 is up on the screen. If, you, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, like, hey, can I borrow your oxen? Sure. How do I know you're going to give them back to me? Well, here, I'll give you my cloak. Okay. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, because you've unjustly held it back, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Okay, so the point is that the possession of the cloak at that time was like an inalienable right. No one could ultimately take that from you, at least not through the night. So the point of what Jesus is saying here is the righteousness Jesus is after is a righteousness that doesn't battle for your rights. Because that cloak was your right. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, what do you gain if you gain your cloak and lose your temper in the process? What do you win if you win your rights and lose your witness? Even when the law protects you, at times you will be called on to yield your rights in order to honor your king. You could think of 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul talks about Christians taking Christians to to court, and he says, why not rather be defrauded? You better to just lose in this one than, you know, show the world that Christians are just at these ugly odds and can't come to agreement. So you could think of Bishop Muriel in Les Mis. Jean Valjean is this criminal. Um, he had only stolen bread and anyway, um, not to go into the whole story, but he's fresh out of prison. He spent all these years basically as a prisoner, and he's got to try to reenter life somehow, but he's angry and bitter because he's been treated so unjustly. The crime, the, the punishment certainly didn't fit the crime. So this bishop takes him in, offering him food and drink and a place to stay. Sadly, Valjean repays that kindness by stealing much of his silver dishes and utensils. He leaves. Valjean is picked up by the police, and they see all this silver, so they bring him back, expecting to confirm his guilt with the bishop. Instead, what happens? If you're familiar with the story, the bishop says, Oh, you forgot the candlesticks. So that act of mercy ends up breaking through the hard shell of Valjean's bitter anger, and it changes his life. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The bishop did that. Third example Jesus gives, to go the extra mile. 
verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, so once again, is this clearer to Jesus' hearers than it is to us? I mean, the only context where we might have someone forcing us to go one mile is, you know, our trainer or something, you know, like or our, our running buddy or whatever it is, or your coach. Is Jesus advocating athletic overachievement here? No, that's not the point. Listen to D.A. Carson. He, says, he summarizes it well. The third example refers to the Roman practice of commandeering civilians. An ordinary Roman soldier could legally commandeer a civilian to help him, for example, to carry his luggage for a prescribed distance. It's exactly what happened with Simon of Cyrene when Jesus could no longer carry his cross. Hey, you, come here. And you couldn't say anything about it. you got to put that cross on your back and, and carry it. Jesus' followers are not to feel hard done by and irritable in such cases, as if personally insulted, but are to double the distance and accept the imposition cheerfully. You see how that goes against the grain of our souls, doesn't it? You need to be meek to be able to do something like this. So in the eyes of the Jews, that practice was insulting. It was degrading. Again, this is an honor issue, not a safety issue. You can imagine how irritating and frustrating this unjust imposition would be. So Jesus' point was, if you're going to follow me, then you need to be willing to be dishonored, insulted, treated poorly for the sake of my name. And even go beyond the call of duty in order to let your light shine before people, that they might see your good works and your good attitudes and give glory to your Father in heaven, like it says back in verse 16. So finally, Jesus gives two more commands in verse 42. You give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Once again, are these absolute commands? So if your son begs you for a Corvette on his 16th birthday and appeals to this text, are you duty-bound to comply? No. If a convicted murderer gets out of jail and begs you for a gun, will you be violating this text to refuse his request? No. Does this text mean that you should give money to every beggar that ever solicits you? Does this mean you should lend money to the same friend or family member that's borrowed before and never repaid, breaking a promise, even if they've lied to you in the past and have a track record of misusing the funds? No. So we need wisdom here, because we do need to qualify this, but we need to make sure we don't qualify it away. These are serious words, but we need to be wise. So just a, for instance, there was a girl in our college ministry some years ago, so sweet. She came up to me and said that she had given $40 to this woman in her apartment complex who had given her a story about needing um, money for prescription medicine. So she gave the money, and then she didn't hear back from her. She had never been paid back, though the woman had promised to do so. And she said, what, what should I do? Like, in light of this passage, what should I do? And not that this is the end-all, be-all advice, but I said, you know what? Go over and visit her and bring her something that you baked and don't even bring up the money. But doesn't mean I'd recommend you giving her more money. 
Or if she does ask again, offer to go to the pharmacy and pay for the meds directly. Okay? So, again, there's wisdom here. We're not going to be tight-fisted trying to save our lives and our money, but we're also not going to be foolish. And Jesus is not encouraging us to be foolish um, in this, enabling people. So, Jesus obviously doesn't mean these commands to be absolute statements, but the greater danger, I think, for us is that we would be inclined to qualify them to death and render them weightless. Right? Well, well, it obviously doesn't mean this and this and this and this. There's nothing left, and I'm no longer convicted or encouraged to actually follow Jesus in these significant, meaningful ways. So we've got to guard against that. There is a common theme that runs through these various commands. Don't live with this protect-my-rights-at-all-costs orientation. Here's what we have no right to, no right to retaliation or revenge. We have no right to save our life, to save our comfort, our money, our time, our possessions. Like the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed. So if you and I, if we're disciples of King Jesus, we've got no sovereign claim to our time and money and honor and comfort and possessions. It belongs to him. And when he puts a need in our path, like the Good Samaritan, we ought to meet that. We meet it wisely, but we ought to meet that. So disciples of Jesus are not think too highly of yourself, rights-oriented, who do you think you are, I'm not going to do that, type people. Not focused on my time and my possessions and my money and my rights. So, again, we certainly need to be wise. We need to be clear on what this doesn't mean. You know, the right to self-defense is different than the right of retaliation. Wisdom not to enable an addict is different from being selfishly tight-fisted. Or the other way around, enabling is not the same as generosity. We ought to be generous, open-hearted and open-handed, but that doesn't mean we should enable. So let's just be wise and guard ourselves. Necessary qualifications, yes, but not qualifying this thing to debt so that we mute the power and the force of these commands. Let's not rationalize them away on the basis of potential threats. Because remember, the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing Jesus says after his baptism, as he comes on the scene, is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here, and we're going to need to change if we're going to follow him. So there's all kinds of selfishness and pride within me, naturally, if I am going to follow Jesus, if, if he is my Savior and King, I need to die to all of that, repent, and trust him, and follow him on this road of meekness and humility and love. All right, so let's embrace the words of our King, take them seriously, don't resist the one who is evil, Resist your fleshly inclination to save your life. I mean, how many times have you had to fight your flesh on this? I mean, I don't know about you, but so many times um, 
You know, sometimes it can be time, it can be money. I remember one time, um, Gail, Gail told me, I was, in the end, I was glad she did. She drove in, so I was, I think, already in my office, and she drove in that entrance, and there was somebody on the little porch by the gym. There's actually a little porch there, you might not even know it, by room 154. And I was like, oh, man, I hope he, like, goes away by the time I get out there to check. You know, so much to do and whatever. It's stupid. I'm, I'm closed. I don't want, you know, this to take more of my time. Instead of, oh, maybe there's an opportunity that Jesus is bringing to bless somebody, serve somebody. And you know what? How many times have I been just backhanded, I guess to use the, um, by God, just like, wake up, you idiot. Um, I'm trying to make your joy full. Um, so anyway, went out there, talked to him, brought him inside. It, it was a beautiful thing. It was a great opportunity to love somebody and give them a cup of coffee and see how they're doing. And anyway, I, I won't go into the details of it. But anyway, I need to repent of my cold, closed heart because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king's here. And if I'm going to be in his kingdom, if I'm following him, then this is what it looks like. Okay. So let's repent and trust Jesus and follow him. All right. Point number three. Hate your enemy. Verse 43. So this is the last two antitheses. You've heard that it was said, I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. So the Pharisee kind of oral tradition had unrighteously downsized the law of love. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So that's kind of restricting the application of neighbor love. I guess it just doesn't apply to your enemy, right? But nowhere in the Old Testament will you find that command, hate your enemy. It's not there. In fact, you'll find the opposite. So look at these two passages. I think these are beautiful. Exodus 23, 4 and 5, so practical, at least back then. But we could think of modern counterparts. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray push it into the ditch. <laughs> you know? Just make sure nobody looks. It's not on camera. No, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, it's a good definition of an enemy, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. Like, oh, I really need to get to, um, you know? You shall rescue it. Leviticus 19.17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. See, even in the Old Testament, striking at the heart. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Love your enemies. Point number four, verses 44 to 47. Jesus is going to the heart of the law and to the heart of his hearers, including us. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it's not a new command. It's a subset of love your neighbor as yourself, even if he's your enemy. So here, an enemy is defined as one who persecutes you. So love whoever's placed in your path, regardless of their relationship to you. 
Pray for those who persecute you. Didn't we see this in the example of Jesus and Stephen and Paul? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus on the cross. Stephen, when he's being stoned to death by his enemies, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then Paul, he had been deserted. May it not be charged against them. He's praying. They're all praying for their persecutors. Here, listen to some more modern examples. So I, I don't know how many of you know who Richard Wormbrand was. Okay, so he was a Romanian pastor that spent 14 years in prison in communist Romania. Okay, this book is incredible. Incredible. And you can get it for free. Just go online to the Voice of the Martyrs and sign up and they'll send you a copy. I mean, just look at how many, like, crazy, you know, little colored things and underlines. It's, it's just, like, so encouraging and challenging. So let me read you a few quotes of what he saw in these prisons from his fellow believers. When one Christian was sentenced to death, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. His last words to his wife were, You must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do, and my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between the two. He later told me the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. How cool is that? God saved the guard. Or this one. I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and, pray and praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which was poured out in our hearts. Later, the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Under communism, communists and even communist rulers are put in prison almost as often as their adversaries. Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while the non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense, even at the risk of being beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with communism. I have seen Christians give away their last slice of bread, we were given one slice a week, and medicine that could save their lives to the sick communist torturer who is now a fellow prisoner. One more. A minister who had been horribly beaten was thrown into my cell. He was half dead with blood streaming from his face and body. We washed him. Some prisoners cursed the communists. Groaning, he said, please don't curse them. Keep silent. I wish to pray for them. If you love like these Christians love their tortures, how can you not be a living billboard for the supernatural grace of God? Let your light shine before people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now that, might, that enemy, might, enemy love might seem like light years away in more than one sense. 
One example is a girl that uh, I knew once she was just horribly treated by this coworker at work just over and over again, and it was beautiful. She had this idea one day that she was just going to bless. She'd been praying for this girl. She decided she's just going to bless her. She got her a manicure. She also gave her some other, like, I don't know. She baked some stuff and gave her a gift. She's this beautiful opportunity, this person who's just, you know, persecuting her for her faith and just also just mean, flat out mean. And she loved that woman and blessed her and prayed for her. So here's the thing. Having some enemies in our lives is an opportunity. You got any enemies in your life? Has anybody ever mocked your faith? Has anybody insulted or belittled you? Maybe this is an opportunity to look them up. See how you can bless them. Lord, give me some creative, crazy idea for how I can love this person. Start praying for them. So this applies, careful here, again, another qualification, to persecution, you know, on account of following Jesus. This follows on the heels of Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are the persecuted. So does this apply to an abuser? No. You report abuse. <laughs> That's a loving thing to do. It's the righteous thing to do, the loving thing to do, protecting future victims. Crime is different than an insult, okay? And actually, you can still love that person. Go visit them in jail. So, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why love like this? Well, to show who your Father is. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is not in order to earn sonship. It's in order to demonstrate and display it. This is, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Because God is the enemy lover par excellence. <laughs> if anybody knows about loving his enemies, it's God. He makes the sun rise and his rain fall on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Why do good things happen to bad people? Okay, the question is worth asking the other way around, and that hangs a lot of people up. Okay, problem of evil, big problem. But how many people are wrestling with the other question? Why do good things happen to bad people? And we are all ultimately sinners, so we're bad people. It's because God loves his enemies. It's the only kind of people he's ever had to deal with. So how can we not just stop here and consider how the Father has loved us, has loved his enemies? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Ephesians 2 says that we were by nature children of wrath. Like we were at enmity, shaking our fist. We don't want God to be God. We want to be God. So, do you believe that you are by nature an enemy of God, that you deserve the punishment of that enemy hostility against God? Our Heavenly Father loved us while we were still hostile toward Him, at enmity with Him, His enemy. 
So there's common grace all around us because God blesses the, the just and the unjust with rain and sun and et cetera, et cetera. But there is saving grace that comes to his enemies. He transfers them from enemy domain of darkness to beloved sons and daughters in the kingdom of his beloved son. So if you came in here and you're not, re you not reconciled to God, you can actually leave here reconciled to God because of God's great love. God loves his enemies. He so loved this enemy-filled world, this world at hostility and enmity to him, that he gave his only son to pay for all of our shake your fist in his face, sin and guilt, so that we could be at peace and reconciled to God and then follow Jesus, our Savior, by his grace and by his great love. Trust him. Repent of trying to be your own God and Savior and trust in Jesus and follow him. All right, so that's the first reason to love like this because this is how God loves. The second is found in verse 46, for the sake of our Father's reward. So, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So if you love those who love you back, you're just doing it for a human reward. There's no grace required for that. Even the selfish, exploitative, kind of despicable tax collectors did that. So Jesus' disciples are after a far greater reward, which anticipates what he's going to say in chapter 6. You know, if you give for the sake of impressing people with your, you know, spirituality and generosity, well, you'll have that reward. But instead, give in secret because you want God's reward, right? We don't pray in public and, you know, try to look really spiritual and impress people. Well, if that's what you do, that'll be your reward. You pray in secret because you want the reward that only comes from God. So here, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? But when you love an enemy, you're not doing it for what you can get out of the deal. There's no guarantee that that enemy is going to respond well. You're trusting God that he will honor what may be met with nothing but, you know, dishonor and scoffing. Again, like that beatitude, the last one, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right? Third reason, not like the world, verse 47. So why love like this? Because we're different. We're different people. We're not like the world. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you because God loved his enemies. And you're his sons and daughters and you ought to bear the family resemblance because his love takes grace. It takes supernatural grace to just, you know, greet those who greet you Gentiles do that. It doesn't take any grace. The passage that Glenn wrote, uh, read in uh, Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit, what grace, actually, literally, is that to you? In other words, it doesn't take any grace, for even sinners love those who love them. So our love, our praying, our blessing, isn't based on the performance of others, It's not based on what return we'll receive. 
It's based on divine love toward us and wanting to glorify the God who loves even his enemies. So how much of your love, how much of my love is dependent on the potential return? Pretty humbling, convicting question. How much of our love is calculated? How much of our love is mercenary? We're really doing it to get this other thing. So this love that Jesus is calling us to, it's totally contrary to human nature. It's conformed to God's nature. It is supernatural. Is there anything supernatural about your love? Is there anything supernatural about my love? We need to repent and follow Jesus. We need his grace to be able to give grace like this. We need his love to be able to love like this. How in the world can you love like this only by supernatural grace? So the last point, loved by God, love like God. We can only love like God because we've been loved by God. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. That is the power that we need to love like God. So verse 48 can sometimes, I think, throw us off. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that word in other places is translated mature. Okay, so what's going on? Is it, you must be perfect. Oh, I can't be, so therefore, I need Jesus to die for me and, you know, make me righteous in God's sight, and I can be justified. Well, that's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. You remember, if you were here um, back a few weeks ago, we talked about what, what Jesus is after. He's not after kind of veneer righteousness, but heart righteousness, where we're the same people all the way through. We talked about a tomato, I think, or maybe it was an apple. If you have an apple or a tomato, you cut it. Anywhere you slice it, you get an apple. You get a tomato. It is what it is what it is. It's integrated. Well, guess what? That's what God's like. He's God all the way through, which means he's loving all the way through. He's compassionate all the way through. And we are called to actually be integrated like that too. We must be whole, whole Christians, righteous all the way through. Not perfect, actually, even though, not sinlessly perfect, but truly whole. Okay, one translation, translator says it this way, therefore you shall be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. God is God the whole way through. There's integrity. His righteousness goes the whole way down. So ours should not be just this external, you know, putting up a front, making a good show on Sundays, but then it's something else throughout the week. No, it's you're a Christian the whole way down. Even where you know there is inconsistency, you're honest about it. Do you see? Like, if I struggle with lust, I'm not hiding it and looking like everything's cool, but in here I'm hiding this ugly thing. No, I'm like calling my brothers like, oh, I hate this. I want to be pure all the way down to the bottom. That is an apple is an apple is an apple. That's what this righteousness looks like. So we are to be Christians righteous the whole way through, even with enemies. Not one thing externally and another thing internally. So no hypocrisy, no putting up fronts. 
right? So Jesus is calling us to love like God, not love like mere humans, because we've been loved by God. This supernatural, awesome, wonderful, you know, wide and long and high and deep love that we sung of, right? Here is love, vast as the ocean. So we can only be like God by the love and grace of God. But by the grace and love of God, we can be like God, even when it comes to loving our enemies. So perhaps somebody's mocked your faith in the past. Maybe you tried, someone you tried to share the gospel with. Maybe recently. Like, hey, Bethel family, let's pray for them. Let's look for ways to proactively love those people this week. Who can you love? Who can you pray for? Who can you bless this week? Maybe do something crazy like, okay, Lord, Spirit of God, just give me some ideas for how I can do some countercultural crazy thing that would only be explained by the fact that you have loved me with a crazy love. So do something like that. You know what? Report back. Let us hear how God's at work, you know, just pouring out the enemy love. And maybe you can share on Sunday and encourage the rest of us with how God's at work. Let's share stories of countercultural, supernatural gospel love. So seriously, I'm like, serious. Stop and pray. Lord, bring somebody to mind. Okay, I need to make, I need to scheme here <laughs> for the good of others and the glory of God. Write it down. And then go do it. Maybe you ask somebody to pray for you. Ask your community group to pray for you. And then go do it. Follow Jesus. So there's, I don't know who actually um, said this. The source is unknown. But to return evil for evil is demonic. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. Let's pray. We're going to sing. God, I pray that you would give each and every one of us a deep desire to have faith like that woman in Liberia, to have faith like those prisoners in Romania, to love as you call us to love even our enemies, and we know that this is not in us. It is not humanly possible that you have loved us with an amazing supernatural love and I pray that you would cause us to be filled up with that love to know that love that surpasses knowledge so that we can pour not our paltry little resources of love out, but your infinite resources of love out on those around us. And by your spirit, I pray that you'd give us lots of creative and crazy ways to do that this week. For the glory of your great name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.